Welcome back, cinephiles. You're listening to Special Features, your one-stop shop for all things behind the scenes. So, you finished your movie. Now what? You could post it online, you could host a screening in the backyard, maybe throw DVDs at unsuspecting motorists on the freeway. There's a thousand different ways to make your film available for the world to see, but there's no experience quite like film festivals. I've been to many film festivals, big and small, and what makes them so worthwhile for me is meeting and getting to know all kinds of new people from all over the world. People like my guest for this week's creative conversation, Taryn Huff, a self-made filmmaker from Southern California who has made some of the most unique and original films I have ever seen. Taryn has recently been touring her documentary, The Last Doll Lady, to festivals around the country, so she stopped by to talk about how making the movies had a major impact on the subject matter itself. Let's start the show. Taryn, welcome to Special Features. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. This is my first podcast. Oh, wow. We get to be your first. That's that's always it's an no, honor. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. You better be good. Yeah, I'll compare every podcast to this experience. Everything will get other... to this, yeah. <laughs> we will ruin you for all other podcasts. <laughs> um, all right. That's that sounds great. Uh, so, how are things out in uh, in Southern California? They are good. Uh, we are having a very overcast day today, which is not so much fun. People think it's yeah. all sunshine and rainbows out here. It's not, my friend. Okay, uh, it's been raining for five straight days here in Pennsylvania. So, oh, well, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, it was like eighty a couple days ago, so I guess I can't complain too much. Well, you. <laughs> Well, you know, like the sun will come out tomorrow kind of thing. We don't know anymore yeah. if the you sun is coming out tomorrow. You're like, at eventually. least you in Southern California, you know, at some point the sun is going to come back. But, well, you know, eventually it will be tomorrow, though. So that song is true. You just keep singing it every day. And at one point, it will be but will the sun come out? I don't know. Well, that's, that's a good point. You know what, though? Our weather sometimes, we've been going through Santa Ana winds. Do you know what those are? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. They're terrible. They're they're oven-like heat, crazy gusts, everybody's sinuses. It's like an episode of The Walking Dead. Everybody is just a mess out here. It's like red eyes. Yeah. No one feels good. Do the car, I, I don't think I've ever been in California around this time of year. So do the cars all get green, like with a, a film of pollen like they, they do out here? Uh, you know, it's not quite that bad. It's more the wind kind of keeps everything clean, which is odd because you'd be like, oh, it's clean. There's no pollen. Um, it just it knocks all the pollen off the trees. It just pushes it right into your system. OK, so. well, that's that's I guess that's one way to do it here. Yeah. <laughs> you walk outside if there's like a parking lot or like a bunch of cars in your area, you'll walk out and you'll see like everything is just has this little bit of a green tint to it at a certain angle and you get up close to it and it's just like this dust of pollen that you're like don't touch it and touch your eye because you won't be able to see for the rest of the day oh my gosh we don't have that our whole thing is you park in a parking lot and your car will be covered with bird poop that's out here yeah not the pollen but the bird poop i'll i would take that i would take that at this point (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think we're really entertaining so far i don't know how you feel about it I'm enjoying it. I like I like starting off the the day with talking. Yeah, like pollen and poop and it's just bantering. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, 
I guess I'm kind of excited about this conversation because oh. everybody else that I have talked to so far are people that I've known for quite a while and we've had they're local people. So I've, I've had all these conversations before with them. So when I'm having them on the podcast, I'm just kind of rehashing things that I already know. I've known you for quite a while. I think we met in 2010 um, at, a, at a film festival. So I've known you for about as long as I've known most of these other people. But just since you live out on the West Coast, I haven't had the chance to really talk about some of your early influence and stuff. So I'm kind of excited to see um, kind of where you came from and how you evolved in your your style. Because out of all of my filmmaking friends, I would have to say you probably have the most unique style oh, of everybody that does things. So, I um, like I s- but you know, keep these expectations low for the answers, my friend. Because but- <laughs> I didn't say it was a good style. Okay, I said it was. <laughs> I'll take unique. I'll take unique. I'll take it. Okay. All right. So, uh, like I said, we met. Uh, it was two thousand. 10 because before i was married so it was 2010 uh, i think it was no cleveland no my friend you had just gotten married that's right we had just gotten married yeah she was like we just got married a couple months ago right 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 no that yeah right because it was it was august that that whole festival run that i was on that summer was like part of it was before i got married far as after so yeah it was it was still um in between but yeah it was it was cleveland it was uh indie gathering out there that was a that was a fun time. I enjoyed that festival a lot. It was uh, not one that pops up on a lot of radars, but it had a lot of cool characters out there, yourself included. I, I do too. You know, it's so funny. Indie Gathering a lot. It seems like people have heard of it or they haven't. Like there's no in between. They've been there before. They've screened. They had a good time. Or they're like, what is this festival in Ohio? I don't get it. I think it's great though. I mean, it's it's definitely like a, like a mid-tier festival. It's not huge. And it's not like Ohio is really centrally located to all 50 states it's not a hub no. yeah but it's it's odd you do get a lot of people from all over the u.s that attend um i've always made really great connections at that festival i've always done some great networking and yeah there's good films i like that one it's a good one yeah i remember that year they had a big um stunt expo kind of mm-hmm. thing going on they had a lot of stunt people that were doing their own like tricks. I remember out in the parking lot, one guy was like dancing through fire or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, that, you don't see that. How did I miss that's, that? I know. That's Cleveland. It. it was like it, it was like a one in the afternoon. So like, who's everybody what, what, was watching movies. Was like nobody's festival or was he just dancing through fire? No, no, no. He was, he was with it. Cause I, we were hanging out with him at like the bar downstairs. We were just like, how did you learn how to do that? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just really, it was, it was kind of, they were like a whole troop. So there was this, the big group of uh, guys and girls that all did like stunts. And I guess they were going around. They were one of the panels too, because they were talking about stunt workers and how they do, um, like how basically their audition process is so much different from everybody else's, um, where it was more about how you can make the other person look good as opposed to yourself looking good. Um, this guy in particular told a story about how he went to one, it was like a group audition and, um, there's all these guys like doing like flips off of walls and, and these crazy things. And they're trying to like really impress all of the, the casting directors for these action movies. And he just goes up and he's like, I just wanted to show them. I knew how to take a punch and, you know, make that look good because you're a stunt worker. You're not the star. You're there to make Arnold Schwarzenegger look cool. Or, you know, something like that. So I just, it's it's kind of like a, a very different from an actor's uh, perspective, which I, you have acting experience. So I, I you know, that, it, it, it was interesting to me. Well, you know, it's really interesting with that. So I, I do have acting experience. I tend to do comedy and improv. And that 
saying or kind of that thought process of it's not about you, it's about making your scene partner look good. That is all about improv. You know, you don't try to be funny when you get up there. You just want to support your partner and help them through the scene and they'll help you through the scene. And you just end up getting comedy gold out of it. You never want to be the star. Right. Right. Well, and maybe it'll change because they're talking about doing like a, a stunt category for the Oscars now. Really? So that might that might kick that up into a gear. And it, it's honestly, I don't know if it, exactly what like for stunt people or for stunt coordinators or something like that. But oh. I think it's becoming like an unsung part of the industry where there's a lot of really cool work going in um, that really isn't getting a ton of recognition. That I know there's um there's action on film festival in Vegas, which started as an action and stunt film mm-hmm. festival basically. So I know they have a lot of stunt categories and there's Artemis film festival uh, in Southern California. That is a women's centric stunt um, film festival. Interesting. So, yeah. People are, they're trying, you know, trying to get the word out. Should call it the Patty Jenkins Festival. Oh, they really should, shouldn't they? Um, so yeah, we we talked about how you had acting influence, and uh, when you were at that particular festival, uh, you were you brought Unit Thirty, uh, which is I think your was that your first short film? Um, that was I think my third short film. Okay, so um, talk me through that transition of going from acting to to making films. Okay, so um, I started acting, doing commercials, things like that. There's a point, though, in an actor's life. Now, this is very different. I just want to paint this picture, too. You could film a movie on your phone in 4K, which is mind-blowing. A decade ago, that was not the case. You know, I mean, I was only solely acting over 15 years ago, not to age myself, but you couldn't film anything on your cell phone. I don't even think really your phone at that time could take a picture. I mean, that that's kind of the, the age yeah. you're in, let alone a video. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So the ability to film things on your own just wasn't, you weren't able to do that. So from an actor standpoint, you're doing commercials, but if you need more material for your reel, you know, right now you could film it yourself and it would look amazing. You couldn't do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the only way to get this footage was through acting in student films or going through Backstage West, not even the website, but the literal magazine, and just trying to go to auditions. So I fell into a situation where I just had a bunch of residual money coming at once. And I was 19, I lived at home, didn't really have any bills, and I was sitting on a substantial amount of money. Um, And one of the things they don't tell you a lot of times when you do, and I'm not saying every student project, I'm not knocking it, but a lot of them, they don't have to actually complete the project. Um, I can't tell you how many times myself or friends, if you act in a student film, you never get your finished film. Or you get the finished film literally like nine months later, which is not super helpful at all. So, wow. yeah. So very, very naively, um, I thought, well, I can make a movie. So I went out and I bought the best camera at the time, which was the Panasonic, the AGDVX100, which was the first pro consumer camera that shot 24p and i bought that and youtube at that point was just a website that you watched cat videos and people eat their lunch there were no tutorials so i bought books on how to edit and just kind of went from there completely self-taught my first movies were horrific but you get through it and you learn a lot um and you just try to get better after each project basically and try to you know what worked what didn't work and just kind of go from there. Yeah. 
Um, so what were your influences? Like, did you have any particular types of movies that you wanted to emulate? Like what influenced your style? Well, growing up, I went to the movies with my mom every weekend and I'm not exaggerating when I say every single weekend we went to the movies. So sometimes you saw complete age appropriate films and other times you're watching the hand that rocks the cradle when you're eight years old, which, Oh boy. Yeah. Or man's best friend about a killer uh, dog. Basically it's like Cujo lights. So that for me was a lot of my influence. I've always loved the movies. I've always loved documentaries, things like that. And I would go to the movies every weekend. I mean, we had points when it was like, okay, we've seen every movie that's out now. What are we going to do? So we'd sometimes, you know, see one a second time. Um, It's ironic. I love horror movies and growing up, and I think this is why. So growing up, I was never allowed to watch horror movies. I never had nightmares as a kid. I wasn't a child that had, you know, trouble sleeping or scared easily. But I think my parents were really paranoid about me getting just afraid, essentially, and having nightmares and, you know, Jason causing a problem. So growing up, I was never allowed to watch horror movies. And I remember very vividly when I was like six or seven trying to watch Jason and Nightmare on Elm Street on TV. And it was like, you know, channel 13 or something. So it's like they edit out all the good stuff. But I remember watching it and like looking over my shoulder to see if my parents were going to watch walk in. It was like I was watching porn, basically. And all I was trying to do was watch this <laughs> horror movie. And to this day, I love horror films. And I honestly think part of it is there's that bit of a taboo of growing up, I was never allowed to watch them. So there was always oh, wow. this, yeah, this like intrigue about them. Yeah, I, I wish I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies. I'm not a big horror horror fan. Um, <laughs> I, I and I was kind of the kid that got nightmares when I was a little kid. Um, so I because I I would catch a couple of them like on TV um, back when they used to run like that kind of stuff on on TV like later at night. Yep. Uh, and it would always be just right before bed, so I would inevitably have some sort of nightmare. <laughs> Um, about them later that night. Uh, and then, you know, I grew up and I, I got older and I was kind of like avoiding them for a while. And then I had a girlfriend, uh, in college who loved horror movies, just the bloodier, the better. And, uh, this was back when they had still had rental stores. So we would go frequently, uh, to rent like whatever horror movie was on the shelf and they were just so bad <laughs> and it was they were all the same it was just it was it would be movies they weren't the major like interview with the vampire or anything like that like things that actually had some value to them it was just you know let's get a bunch of people together and make this horror movie kind of thing <laughs> yeah and, yeah i should say i'm not a huge fan of um like i do not like torture porn um i'm not a fan of the saw series or hostile or anything like that. Um, I like a plot. I'm like you. I want a plot. I want there to be some mystery. I really like horror movies um, from the 70s and 80s and just 60s. I just mm-hmm. I love cinematography from the 60s. It's gorgeous. Any movie oh, yeah. from the 60s, oh, I could just watch it all day. I don't even care what the plot is. Um, like, I love the original Black Christmas which is a great okay. film. It came out in, I believe, the late 70s. It was a, it's a Canadian movie. And a lot of people haven't seen it. And it, they remade it, and the, the remake is terrible. But the original, there were so many firsts in it that people don't know. I mean, Halloween gets attributed as the first uh, POV of the killer, basically. So it's the first time we, we use the killer's POV, and it's the camera. No, man. 
Black Christmas did that. Um, I mean, I'm sure people have seen Black Christmas. Spoilers, though. The movie's like over 40 years old. But they don't catch the kids. <laughs> if you haven't seen it by <laughs> now, I mean. <laughs> Turn off the podcast or pause it or something. Um, so they don't catch the killer at the end. And it's the first time that that had really happened, that you didn't know who the killer was. So they just, they did a lot of firsts in it, basically, that it, people just don't think of it. And some of the death scenes... Um, there's a Margot Kidder who just passed away. She has this beautiful death scene. This is going to sound ridiculous, but the killer impales her with this crystal unicorn statue that she has. And it's beautifully shot. And I say this as someone that does that it. That does sound beautiful. And honestly, there's like the prism effect coming through and mm. really, really nice the way they did it. I'll have to go back and watch that. It's a good, um. it's a good it doesn't take itself seriously. Um, like there were just a lot of firsts that were done in it and a lot of people haven't seen it. I guess when it came out, it was a Canadian, I guess it was Canadian. And so it just didn't really get a lot of play out here in the States. Um, but it, it's a good movie. <laughs> People went to the theater and were like, Canadian? <laughs> what is this? No, I mean, they celebrate Christmas in Canada? <laughs> I mean, Thanksgiving's not at the end of November. I don't want to watch this. I don't even know if it got yeah. released out in the States as part of it. So uh, it's a good movie. Maybe. I recommend checking it out. Okay. Well, we've got a recommendation there for there you. you. Um, yeah. So was that, so um, aside from horror, cause I, I think there's a lot that you can get out of horror. You know, you don't have to really love the genre oh, yeah. to, uh, cause it, it, it is, um, I think everybody kind of learned this with get out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's elements to like a horror type that can translate into a different, completely different type of film, just elements of suspense and mystery, like you said, um, that can get out of it. So if you don't, if you're a younger filmmaker and you're not watching horror films, you're, you're kind of have a a little bit of a missing piece of how you uh, play with people's emotions as you're going through a film, even if it does not necessarily fear or like, you know, a cheap, let's have somebody jump out of a closet kind of thing, but just playing with emotions through music and uh, plot devices, things like that. You know, that's, it's, that's a huge part of filmmaking that you get very clearly in horror that you might not get out of other movies. I completely agree. I mean, if it doesn't, if you want to be a filmmaker, you should be watching all movies, whether you like them or not. And horror in particular, kind of what you're saying, the pacing and timing is so good. I mean, if that's bad, scares don't work. You know, things just don't come together how they should where you should be watching everything don't limit yourself people who are listening mom tuning in watch all films learn from them yeah it's the the suspense is in what's not seen which is so such a basic concept of writing exactly that you have to have yeah so uh and i I think you can see those elements in in some of your earlier films i haven't seen your previous two unit 30 was the first one that i saw of yours but even that was a little bit of a kind of a suspense thriller so take me through kind of the influence of that so uh, unit 30 would definitely be in the comedy realm as well i love the idea of the scare, but also with the chuckles. Um, I'm sure part of that, a big part of that, I imagine, I saw Scream. Scream came out when I was in high school. And this was, again, at a time when DVDs didn't exist. Uh, you would go to rent things at Blockbuster or, or Hollywood Video, which is like their big competitor. So going to the movies really was this like special event that you would go. And, and I remember going and the theater was packed. It was hard to get a seat. I had a friend sitting in the aisle um, because he couldn't find his seats and they made a move because of the fire marshal and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think a lot of 
I think a lot of Unit 30 was influenced from Scream. And again, I feel like Scream was really the first horror movie that had legitimate laughs in it and kind of turned the camera in on itself and made fun of the horror genre. The whole first scene was just kind of really tongue in cheek. Exactly. Like they knew what they were doing. It was like, we know what we're doing. We're going to make fun of horror films. And I know like now I feel like it doesn't really seem like a big deal. Like if a kid watched now, they'd be like, Oh, what's the big deal? But it's like at the time that had never been done. Nothing like that had been done with that level of comedy and that level of intelligence, quite frankly, and kind of that like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So I just, I loved it. I tried to do that a lot with unit 30, basically. I tried to have a lot of jokes play into it. Um, big fan of the X-Files, the lead characters in Unit 30. Uh, their names were Mulder and Scully. So had that little a little nod to them. <laughs> I, for- I forgot about that. Yeah, they were at the... <laughs> that was my big thing, though. It's just I feel I love being scared. I just I love a good mystery. I love suspense. And I think that that doesn't always have to be so heavy-handed. I think you can scare someone then have a laugh right after. You know, I just, I think that's possible. And that's personally what I love. And so that was kind of what, I don't know, made me want to make Unit 30, basically. It was just a fun story. Um, but I mean, I can, I'll tell the plot real quick. So Unit 30, well, here's the thing too. I really wanted to make a film that had a, uh, that had two lead characters that were gay, but the story itself had nothing to do with them being gay. They just happened to be gay. And sure. it, it wasn't addressed. It wasn't a big deal. That was just who they were. And then let's go on with the story. Because again, at the time what, almost 10 years ago, that just wasn't really out there. So the film is about a lesbian couple that moves into a home, they're renters. And this was during one of the big bubbles, the housing crisis, when, oh, it was stupid to rent. You want to buy a home? Why are you renting? That's terrible. Renters are terrible people. So that was also kind of the premise of the whole thing is kind of the pressure people get to buy a home. Don't rent. You're throwing your money away. Oh, I realize it's overpriced and it's some crazy inflated rate and blah, 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 but it'll work out. And then it didn't work out for anyone. <laughs> so this couple, <laughs> couple moves into the home and they start renting and uh, they start getting packages for the mysterious unit 30. So they try to solve the mystery and basically unit 30 was just kind of the rental office they used when they were selling homes in this planned community. But people in charge of the HOA essentially were sacrificing renters to the devil to keep the HOA fees low. And that's kind of like the big surprise at the end. And we actually even have like a funny joke at the end where uh, one of the lead characters is, what, you're, you're sacrificing us to the devil because we're gay? And it's like, gay? No, it's because you're renters. Because it was such a dirty word at the time. No one wanted to be a renter. <laughs> Based on a true story. I happened to my neighbors. Yeah, it's terrible. But we don't pay much in our HOA. So, I mean, you yeah. know. You were a big... Kind of tell me because... You're you do a lot of festival runs. Um, with Unit Thirty was your first big one. I know that you were kind of towards the end of your particular festival yeah. run with Unit Thirty, and then you were currently were you were you working on Electrocute at that point? I think you said you were in post production. No, so Electrocute. It's funny. I actually met one of the voice actors at that festival that we met at. That same one. Um, no, I, I knew I wanted to do something that was part live action, part animation, but that's all I knew. I, I didn't have a plot. I didn't. Well, I take that back. Originally, it was going to be me and a hamster. It was going to be Harry the Homicidal Hamster. And the plot was something, I don't know, something to do with me having to hide 
the body parts and the limbs of the people Harry kills. <laughs> but I went in another direction. Maybe I'll come back to Harry the homicidal hamster at some point. But no, at that I was going to say, I think there's potential there. I know, I know. God, maybe I shouldn't have said that on the podcast. Man. Uh-oh. I know. That's how things get stolen. Uh, I but, guess. But no, with Electric Cute, I really just I wanted to make, again, a comedy that fell into some other genre as well that was part live action, part animated. And that's really all I knew. And I'd never animated anything at that point. I was I did everything in After Effects. I was new to After Effects. Um, I knew that I wanted kind of a cheap look to it, though. I wanted a bit of a South Park look, a little more polished than that, but not great. That was kind of part of the whole thing of the device. It was a little schlocky and cheap. So that helped because it didn't have to be really good. Um, but that was kind of it with that. Like, that was kind of all I knew that I wanted to do. Um, oh, you know, well, I ended up doing a sketch soon after that was uh, me. So have you ever looked at an item and seen a face, basically? You look at a sink and you're like, God, that's so weird. The sink was like two eyes and a mouth and a nose. It's so bizarre. So that I ended up doing a sketch where a sink started talking to me and I put it up online and it went over really well, like really, really well. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of Electrocute. That went over well. And again, it was like, how do I, how do I make this into something more? of objects talking, but animation and comedy, and I guess now kind of the fantasy genre, but it's still kind of dark. I mean, she, she dies at the end. So that was, that was electrocute in a nutshell. You were just inside my brain. I hope you enjoyed it. Did you have a little walk around? A little dusty up there? <laughs> I haven't cleaned we're it We're a little scared while. now. Yeah, I haven't cleaned it for a while, so <laughs> there's some dust bunnies up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, how do you really feel? Cause you've kind of bounced around a little bit to like different, different genres. I think far as the, uh, the, the, um, like household appliances, things that look like, I think there's a subreddit for that now. So that's, that's its own whole world in and of itself that I think could spawn. Um, <laughs> it could be an interesting like series kind of thing, or just this person that talks to appliances. I like it. But solves crimes. Oh, <laughs> Maybe they like go a, after like a, Harry the Homicidal Hamster. It's a big tie-in. That's the main villain, the arch enemy. Oh God, I love it. Is Harry the Homicidal Hamster? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, so how, where do you get? Yeah, how do you get from uh, from there to uh, Last All Lady? <laughs> yeah, I know. There. So, but here's the funny thing with the Last All Lady. So everyone that has met me with the last all lady at a festival can't believe the other movies i used to make or i've made in the past and then everyone well, i can't that, blame them uh, and that's the thing <laughs> and everyone that, that knows me like you do that met me with these other films is like wait hold on what is your documentary about what because it's just so not they just they don't go together basically um so okay so the thing with the last all lady i love documentaries i mean since i was single digits i've just i've always really enjoyed them and I always knew that I wanted to make a documentary but I feel like the subject is key not just uh the actual subject of the documentary but the person themselves I mean I really feel that everyone has a story everyone has gone through something in their life that would make an incredibly compelling story but not everyone is likable and I think that's part of it I mean I could make a documentary on someone who, you know, rescues kitties and feeds the homeless. But if that person's an asshole, that movie's not going to go over well because you can't edit that out, you know. That, that'd be very tricky to do. So when I met Selma, 
oh my God, it was just like, this woman is amazing. She's super charming. This has to be told, her story. So, yeah, take, take me through that a little bit because I, I saw a rough cut. Okay, yeah. Uh, but I haven't seen the finish. Okay, I'll send you a copy of the finished. I'll send you a link if you want. Um, so the last doll lady, I guess I should back up. So there's a program called Dolls for Democracy. It was started in the 1950s, and it was to teach kids why racism is wrong, why you shouldn't judge someone who doesn't look like you or has a disability. It was a great program. And women would buy dolls. They were character dolls of everyone from uh, Helen Keller to Abraham Lincoln. And they became known as doll ladies because they would go around to schools and they would teach kids with these dolls about why racism is wrong. The program ended up in uh, it just basically stopped getting funding in the early 80s. But these women bought the dolls. So if they wanted to keep you know, giving the presentation, they could. It wasn't a big deal. So Selma, the lead in the documentary, she's 92 years old. She's been giving the program for over 60 years. She was one of the original doll ladies, and now she's the last wow. doll lady. Yeah, so the documentary follows. It, it tells people about the program because a lot of people have not heard of the program. They're like, well, what is this? Um, but it really follows Selma and her efforts to basically revitalize the program and get a younger generation interested in it so the program doesn't die when she passes away, basically. It's, it's a real... So she literally is the last person on earth that's still yeah. doing this she's, presentation. She's literally the last doll lady. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I've been contacted from people that are like, oh my God, my aunt was a doll lady or my grandmother was a doll lady. I mean, they're all... And the thing is too, everyone's dying. They're all dead. No one's giving it anymore. Um, I was recently contacted... All these dolls were made by hand. I was recently contacted by a woman who was in her 60s whose mother, ironically, her name was also Selma, and she's still with us, um, she made some of the dolls. So for her, it was a trip mm. to see this movie because it was like, oh my God, these dolls were such a big part of my life. I mean, she remembers coming home and smelling her mom literally baking like these doll heads in the oven, in their hands in the oven, um, and helping her like sew the clothes and turn them inside out and all that. And her dad would make the wooden stands, and it was just such a big part of her childhood. And, you know, the fortunate thing is the, the program lived and died before the Internet was a thing. And no one has gone to the trouble to digitize it. And so it's very difficult to get any information. It's basically all oral history from the people that have given it, um, which is a shame because it's, it's a really cool program. It did a lot of good. It's still doing a lot of good. Um, and no one even knew that it existed. Yeah, I remember seeing in the rough cut that she you taped her giving a presentation mm -hmm. to a group of kids yeah. and it was, it seemed like it was something that was really connecting uh, with these kids. Her just telling the different stories about the different uh, dolls that were, uh, that she had. Um, and, you know, she was really working hard. Is she still working hard to try to keep it going? Um, no, she, the, she is. So um, what's interesting is we got a lot of push from people. I mean, Selma is one of those people she knows how to get publicity. She knows how to get the word out about things. In the documentary, we do the last adult kind of presentation to try to get more people. And the Orange County Register is a very large paper out here in Southern California. And they came out to basically interview us about the documentary, about the program. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is cool. And I just, I thought it was going to air online, quite frankly. I had no idea. And uh, my mom is like, hey, so I want to let you know I got the paper 
and it's the 4th of July edition. Um, and you guys are on the front page. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so for me, that was like, oh my God, this is so cool. And I remember calling Selma and Selma's like, hmm, well, we'll see if anybody calls. We'll see. Like she could care less. Yeah. She didn't care about her oh, own. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, I don't care. Her. Whatever. We're on the we're on the front page. This is no big deal. This is an old thing for me. Yeah, she really did not care, and it was all about getting the word out to people. So the thing that's a shame, and we, we kind of showcase this in the documentary. She gives the presentation, and you know, yes, Selma is ninety two, but she has completely changed my thought process of aging and what it means to be almost a hundred. She's incredibly witty, charming. Um, she, you can have a great conversation with her. I mean, just, people don't think that she's as old as she is, basically. But what would happen after these presentations is people would see it. And no one wanted to become a doll lady, but they wanted to tell her what she could do to get more people interested. And what she was doing wrong, essentially. And why people weren't joining. And it was just pretty funny because everyone's like, well, you know what the problem is? It's because they're dolls and kids don't care about dolls. You need to make this into a video game because kids are into video games and an app and blah, blah, blah. And the irony with all of that is when we went to give the presentation at the school, which we were commenting on, the kids loved the dolls, sincerely loved it because it wasn't a game. It wasn't an app. It was this tangible thing. Yeah, it's not something that they're used to seeing. Like it's, it's not. Wait, I can touch this. Exactly. This, it's not. Yes. It's not on a screen. Wow. Exactly. This is a person. I can hold it and feel the clothing and look at their face and you know turn around in my hands. And the kids loved it. And the principal and several teachers came up to me, and uh, and they were like, "Wow, you know, she did a really good job." And I'm like, "Oh, thanks." And they're like, "We just want to let you know, the kids really enjoyed it." And, you know, you're kind of like, oh, they're just saying it. I'm like, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. And they're like, no, 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 no. They're like, Taryn, you don't understand. They're like, this is a rowdy bunch of kids. If they didn't like it, they would have just started talking and playing and kind of getting up. <laughs> they wouldn't have stayed seated for the 40-minute presentation, which to me was just a huge compliment and testament, yeah, to what Selma's doing. So it's, it looks like now um, it is going to continue, hopefully. We have some people interested in continuing it um, in the high desert area and kind of getting okay, yeah, junior high kids involved. And I know Selma has a couple other people who are interested. Um, the big goal with the documentary is to have it air on PBS. Um, and I've been talking to a producer with PBS, and it's actually getting pitched next month in June um, to possibly air during a telethon in August or December, which is when they have the big telethon. So the goal and kind of what's getting pitched is basically to have it air during that time and then to have it air nationally after that. And then after that, the goal is just to get the movie into libraries and into schools so kids can see it um, and, and just really see that it's such, you know, without getting political, um, it's such kind of, there's just a lot of sad things happening. And I think it's really important for kids to realize that there are good people out there and there are people out there fighting to end racism and fighting to end injustices. And I just think that's really important that kids see that. And Selma's doing that. So, I mean, that that's my whole goal with the movie. I don't want to make any money off of it. I just want kids to see it. Sure. hundred um, percent. I just remember in the rough cut that you ended on, you know, spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just, she had that, she had that conversation with, uh, you know, a, a room full of people that might be interested in, you know, carrying the thing on. Um, but then none of them, came back yeah. 
And just, I just remember this heartbreaking sequence where you just showed her calling all of the people that showed up and just saying, Hey, it's, you know, it's Selma. I, I, you came out to this meeting. I was just hoping to, to get you involved in this uh, project still. And just, just leaving voicemails yeah. to, to people that, you know, they, they came out, but then they didn't want to come back again. And that was just so, that was so heartbreaking. So it's, it's a little heartwarming for me to hear that there are some people now through the power of this documentary um, that are reaching out. So tell us to the, to the tens of listeners that I have, um, <laughs> where can we go and find, you know, if somebody wants to become a doll lady, how can they, how can they become a doll lady or how can they contact so Selma? If they go to heroes of org, So exactly how you just spell it. Heroes of org, O-R-G. That will take you to Selma's website. Um, and on that, it tells you a little bit about the dolls. We have some photos of the dolls. Uh, we have a web address to get a hold of them. Um, and just to kind of go back to those interviews that we were talking about, uh, those that was probably one of the hardest things to film because I really uh, the documentary is done in was it cinema verte style? I think it's what it's called, where it's basically kind of a fly on the wall. Like you are just seeing this unfold. I'm not interacting with anyone. I'm not changing anything. I'm not influencing anything. It's very third yeah, person. And yeah. that was incredibly difficult because it's Selma's story. And I was editing as we went along. Cause there, there is a point, you know, in documentary filmmaking where you just kind of like, well, okay, let's sit and wait and see what happens. And so we were at that point and that was, that was just really difficult when people weren't showing up and people were rude. Um, it was hard to see Selma go through that. And there, there were several meetings. I mean, in, in the documentary, we only show two meetings. We talk about her having others, but we probably had six other meetings after that. Um, and there was a woman who Selma thought was going to continue on. She's like, oh, I got a good feeling about her. And I had the opposite feeling. I was like, I don't have a good feeling about her. And I was like very gently, I guess you'd say, kind of trying to let Selma know my thoughts off camera so she wouldn't get her hopes up. And sure enough, this person just stopped showing up and wouldn't, she basically like ghosted Selma, like wouldn't return her phone calls. That was it. Uh, and that yeah. was really difficult. So it, it's funny. Once the, once the film was done, she really wanted a website and I was like, oh, I don't want to make the website, you know, during the documentary. So when the documentary was done, I made her her heroes of democracy website so people could find out about the program and, you know, try to get the word out. So it, it looks like it will continue on. And we're hoping too, if the film gets picked up to air on PBS, I mean, what better publicity is that? Tons of people would see it. Right. Yeah. And so that's, I think, I think hopefully, you know, I feel like I'm like, patting myself on the back, but I really feel that through the documentaries festival run. And like I said, hopefully airing on PBS. Um, and then of course, once it's done with this festival run at the end of the year, or I think middle of next year, um, I'm going to make the film free to see online. So I'm just hoping through all of that, we'll find a group. We'll find people that want to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a great, uh, just that, that little story about how people are finding you and you know, the, the, uh, program might carry on is just such a testament to the power of filmmaking and documentary filmmaking of telling these stories that actually have some kind of meaning, 
you know, it's not just like in a, in a regular theatrical flick, you can go see the Avengers and you're like, man, that was cool. And, and, you know, you're really excited about it, but this actually, this means something to someone, you know, Selma's trying to keep this alive and you telling her story might actually make that happen for her. And that's just, that's amazing. I I appreciate that. I mean, these are real people. She has, she has legit, given 60 years of her life to this program and i mean she's one of those people that she was a nurse and she's always she's always helped people basically she lived in a town and before she knew about the dolls program the town didn't have a library so selma had a big fundraiser and they literally built one for kids and got books donated uh i want to say that summer the following summer some kids drowned in like the local swimming pond and she's like it was terrible it was only a couple feet deep they just panicked and freaked out and it happened so what did Selma do? She started a swim program that summer. So every kid in town would learn how to swim. So no one would drown again. She's just that type of person. She's incredibly caring. She really sincerely cares about people and it comes through. I mean, (laughs) so during the process of making the film, um, so Selma's 92, her husband is 93 and they live in a retirement community called Laguna Woods in Southern California. There was a luncheon and this luncheon was only for people who were over 90 years old. And it was so incredibly inspiring to be in this room filled with probably a hundred people and everyone was over 90. And some of the people in the room were like 107. One was 111. It was unbelievable. But just to give you an idea of how Selma is. So Selma's in this room. She's 91 at the time. And she's noticing people. She's like, oh, look, some of these people, they're not comfortable. So Selma went and passed out these pads for people to sit on just during the banquet, essentially. So instead of kind of like sitting and being quiet and resting, Selma was like, nope, I'm going to pass out these pads for people to sit on so they're comfortable. And it just, it's really a testament to who she is as a person. She's incredibly compassionate. And I just hope more people get to see the movie. That's the goal. Yeah, she sounds like an amazing person. It, it definitely came through in the documentary. And, you know, I, I, I would, Love to be able to meet her someday. I, I'm sure at 92, she hasn't really been making the festival run with you. Has she come to any of them that might have been yeah, local? Yeah, so it's so funny. So she ended up going. We've had um, two local screenings. One she was not able to attend, but the other one she was. And it was our first local screening. And, uh, you know, this is at the Culver City Film Festival. The film ended up winning, um, I want to say, uh, audience favorite documentary at that festival. I, and it was so amazing. So the theater was filled. I mean, it was literally like a sold out theater it was packed and the film could not have gone over better i mean you've seen it there are some funny moments in it you know that you kind of talk a oh, lot. Yeah. yeah and people laughed at all the right moments when it came up that no one shut up there was this huge oh, audible gasp throughout the audience i had friends kind of like situated throughout the audience and we didn't all sit together and they were like oh my god they're like i was sitting some, you know, next to someone and none of us knew them and they were like oh this is terrible like talking to themselves like about the movie so it went over really really well and afterwards i went up for the q a and ended up getting like a double clap and i was the only filmmaker that got that and you know we had selma stand up and everybody kind of gave her a standing ovation and we ended up basically blocking the entrance exit for the next block. Cause so many people were swarming around her to find out about the program. So she went outside the lobby and was handing out bookmarks and it was amazing. She couldn't believe it. You know, she's always said from the beginning, she's like me, like who cares about me and my story. And she's incredibly humble. She doesn't even get, you know, how amazing what she did and what she continues to do uh, is how it's affecting people. And what's, what's so funny is, um, you know, in the documentary, the program has not, it's not continuing on. And there's kind of this little, 
vignette at the end with Salma setting up her dolls and basically saying like, well, you know, I'm not going to give up. Like, I'm going to basically do this till the day I die and I'm going to keep pushing. And it's so interesting, the different reactions we've had from people where some people see that and they're like, oh my God, they're like, it's so inspiring. Like it makes, you know, it makes me feel lazy. I want to get out. I want to do stuff. And I feel like I can do anything. I can tackle the world. Then you have other people that are like, oh my God, that's so sad. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to take this now. <laughs> makes me think about my own death and oh, what am I doing with my life? So it, it's just funny how people, you know, take material in different directions, basically. Yeah, I think there's a, uh, a element, they they want something like that. So there might be an element for some of these people of, I wish uh, I loved something as much as Selma loves this, you know, and that's, I think that's really inspiring to people and, and people want that. People want to have something to dedicate their life to and that in the way that, that Selma has, and it, it would be a, a real shame. So I'm glad to hear that it is potentially continued on because it would be a shame if it didn't, that, that something like this, like her legacy kind of, kind of gets to move forward. Here. I think it will. So yeah, I, I think it will. I mean, like, it's hard to say, but it, it looks like it will. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's an amazing story. And, and thank you for, for telling that to us. So I, I hope that everybody that's listening to this is, is able to go and see that when it's available. So uh, we'll, we'll be sure to update uh, people on that. So yeah. um, moving, moving forward for you, uh, do you see yourself making more documentaries? Yeah. Is this something that kind of like you got the bug oh now yeah. or is it, you want to get back? You want to make Harry the homicidal hamster next? What? <laughs> which path are you going to take? I want to make it all. No, I uh, I love making documentaries, and it's completely different than narrative. Um, it I don't want to like knock any genre. You know, for me personally, I find documentary filmmaking it's obviously uh, much more difficult than narrative because there's no script to follow. There's no outline. You know, of kind of when you're editing. But to me, it's so much more rewarding because it's real life and you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, like with the last doll lady, I shot all of that. So I'm getting interviews of her and then I'm having to get like B roll at the same time and trying to get it all together. So when it comes together and it emotionally affects people, it's like, ah, yes, like that's what I was going for. You know, I had somebody, it was funny at an after party, they were like, Oh my God. They're like, I saw your movie. It was so heartbreaking. And I got really excited. I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. So I'm like, that that might not have been the proper response to have, but that's what I was going for. So thank you. On the contrary, I think that's the perfect response for a filmmaker. I made you feel something. That's amazing. I love it. Wait a second. Maybe that's the alcohol talking. I'm sorry you were heartbroken about that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so coming up, uh, I have a couple ideas for documentaries. One, um, kind of in the vein of Selma, I have a friend, his name is Randy, an amazing individual. He has really lived the reduce, reuse, recycle spirit for decades. He hasn't, he's in his sixties. He hasn't had a car for over 40 years. He bicycles everywhere. Um, He dumpster dives, he gets the stuff. He's a real recycle guy. So uh, him and his buddies take donated bike parts. They, people donate them, they dumpster dive for them behind bicycle shops. And then they build bikes and then they ride them down to Mexico and they give them away to villagers. Beautiful story, beautiful person. So that's, that's one idea, which we're going to do. Randy though, is right now traveling around the world on his bicycle. Um, he, he's from Southern California. He just bicycled up to Alaska. Traveling on the world? Literally, oh yeah. Um, he bicycled in Spain. He was bicycling on okay. glaciers in. Okay. So he's not getting 
to Spain on his bike, oh, no. but he's just yeah, taking his yeah, bike. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, has he figured out some kind of secret pathway that can get across oceans without an airplane? Because that would save me a lot he of money. He stays on the bike the whole time. So it's like, technically, you know, I'm on a plane, but I'm on my bike. <laughs> but like, he just stayed, uh, he was in Southeast Asia wow. for like eight months bicycling around. So this is like, this is okay. really what he does. So that's one story. Um, I have a couple others where uh, we kind of have a friend who she's a little person and she competes um, competitively weightlifting. It's a very inspiring story. And there's no uh, like little people weightlifting competitions. It's all for average size people. So it's really interesting and she's winning them. So she, she's really fun. So that's like another one. I'm she's winning against, against normal size. Yeah. People. Yeah. Against average size people. Yeah. So that would be one. Okay. Um, so we got that one. We got Randy. Yeah. I'd pay money. For exactly. That. So we got that one. We got Randy. Um, and then as far as kind of narrative stuff, I'm working on, I mean, I might kind of revisit Harry, the homicidal hamster. We keep talking about him, but I'm I'm like, "Hmm." uh, no, but I'm working on a a horror movie. It's called old Mrs. Jenkins. And I, I don't want to necessarily say that it's a period piece movie, but the film does take place in the eighties, but we're not like shoving it down your throat. I don't think that's far enough to say period piece. It's a period piece. When's take place? it's it's the 80s it's a decade earlier um there's just like here's the bottom line it's it's a very simple story but we're hoping that we're doing it right it's you know it's a ghost story dark and stormy night the lights go out in the home one of those things um but it's a movie that couldn't be told now when we were kids and you lost the power during a storm that was terrifying you had this instant thought of, oh my God, where are the flashlights? Who cares about the flashlights? We don't even have batteries. Where are the candles? Why do we have candles? You like instantly forgot the layout of your own home. You're like, what room am I in? Like, where's the doorway? What is going on? It was such a scary- What am I stepping on? That's the carpet. Oh. Is that a child or my parent? Like it was terrifying. But now if the power goes out, eh, whatever. I have my phone. There's a flashlight on my phone. I can Google- is my phone charged? Is my well, phone most charged? Most of the time it is. But anyway, it's like, oh, I can I can Google the power company. Is this a known outage? Eh, whatever. I can go somewhere. I mean, you know, over 30 years ago, there weren't even just as many shopping centers. It's it's just not such a scary thing, basically. Uh, so that's part of the reason it was like, well, this needs to take place in the 80s. Because right now, if the power went out, it's just not scary. It takes place in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, we're doing a lot of really fun stuff with it. Where um, So the story only works in the 80s, but we could have only made it now so I'm directing it, and a friend is co-directing it, Thomas, who lives in New Jersey. So very, very fun. I met him at, a, at the uh, Terror Film Festival years ago. So we're, we're directing that together, and he's directing it via Skype. So it's been really, really interesting. Of, interesting. Yeah, like setting him up in front of the monitor and, and things like that. And we're only lighting the film with candlelight um, and flashlights and the fireplace. Um, so it's it's basically done. Um, we had to just kind of work around a couple things. So we had to get some additional B roll that I just haven't had a chance to get very simple stuff of like the outside of the house, things like that. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're very, very far along on that though. And the runtime on that is going to be very, very short. Um, we're looking at maybe seven minutes max. I would love for it to be. Even yeah, shorter. That's sweet. yeah. It's we're. I initially made the whole thing cause I was like, God, I really want to make a super short. That just seems like a lot of fun. And it just didn't really turn out that way. Super shorts normally are five minutes or under. Um, I think right now it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like 620 or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's coming together. We've shown some people some rough cuts. I get to do a rough cut if you're interested. Uh, it's People are really liking it. They're like, it's scary. 
I don't want to give anything away, but you know, the elements that we're using are really good. It's so funny because it is just lit with candlelight. I've had a lot of people, they're like, wow, how'd you light this? It looks so good. I'm like candlelight, fireplace. I, I, I love lighting that's on screen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's some of the most beautiful cinematography. I think it was done really well in La La Land. Uh, it was done really well in uh, Manchester by the Sea. It's, you know, it's underrated and it's something you don't really notice unless you're kind of in it. Uh, yeah. You're kind of in the biz where you're kind of like, wow, they're lighting that with that that light that's on the screen. Yeah. That is their light source for the entire thing. Exactly. And that's how we did this. And I've just, I've had a lot of people, well, personally for me, I love that warmth of candlelight in the scene. I just think it's so amazing. I love, I love an outdoor scene at a party that is just lit with lights. Oh my God. In your movie, there's a scene where the guy goes outside for a party. Did you light that with other lights or was that just with the lights? No. Was it just the lights the uh, the Christmas lights, See, yeah. I love that type of thing. Like that's the best, yeah. man. Oh. It was yeah, that was I think that was one of the most fun. I picked that little spot because they originally in the script they weren't supposed to go outside. They were supposed to go to another room. And I, I kind of saw that lighting out there. I was like it's it's bright enough where it's going to appear on screen, but it's it's nice enough where I can just kind of have it the way it is and not have oh, to worry yeah. about rigging up lights here yeah. and there. So yeah, I I, I look for that whenever Acoustic I can. Acoustic hearts, little plug for you there, my friend. That's one of my favorite. Oh, I, uh, don't worry, I I plug. I plug. <laughs> You're like there's just a scrolling bar at the bottom that just has acoustic hearts over and over. Acoustic hearts, yes. <laughs> Did you see it? I don't let people listen to the next episode until they watch Acoustic Hearts. What I learned from this episode is that documentaries like The Last Doll Lady can make a real impact on people's lives, and something that was once feared lost forever may now have a chance to live on because of this film. I hope someone listening wants to get involved, and if you do, I have included links in the description for more information. What a tremendous story. A big thanks to Taryn for taking the time to chat. I can't wait to see whatever comes of Harry the Homicidal Hamster. I smell an Oscar. And that's all. Uh, if you come across a person you find interesting and think there should be a documentary about them, go make it yourself. Until next time, keep up the great work. And in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.